This is Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic. And now your host, Michael O'Fallon. So why sovereign nations? Why did I start this organization six years ago? Is it a ministry? No, it's not. Is it a media organization? Well, sort of. Think of it more as a lighthouse. And also a civilizational Rosetta Stone, where you first heard of words and phrases like critical race theory, intersectionality, the great reset, the big sort the global brain, the Belt and Road Initiative, Integralism and Integralismo, and many others. Where you first heard names like Klaus Schwab, Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, Walter Rauschenbusch, Yuval Harari, and Dom Helder Kamara. And possibly where you were first introduced to, six years ago, to Dr. Jordan Peterson, Dr. James Lindsay, and Dr. Stephen Hicks where I have endeavored to warn about what is to come before it was ever a worry in your mind. And I started doing so when it was risky to mention any of the issues that are now being spoken about on a daily basis by pundits all over the world. Six years ago, it was risky. And for many of you who have been listening since 2017, much of what I was warning about seemed unbelievable. And I think every year or so, it's necessary to take a few minutes to remind my listening audience and supporters, and especially the thousands of new listeners that we've picked up over the past few months, remind everyone just to clear up any sort of adversarial purpose confusion of the reasons why I started Sovereign Nations. This is important because as the rhetoric of accusations and motivations are being thrown about by those attempting to grift off the movements that we reluctantly started six, seven years ago, well, intentions need to be made clear. And those intentions are best summed up in the why Sovereign Nations was necessary and the how we began, the why we began. And when I explain the story of the necessity of sovereign nations, it's a story of providence and a road that I honestly couldn't have planned myself. So let's start way back with helping you understand my development. What were my influences? How I gained the knowledge through the years to end up where I am today. So let's start far before my involvement with the political realm before my involvement with even evangelicalism. Let's start back when I was attending the University of Florida, and I was a Roman Catholic at the time. Now, as a Roman Catholic, I grew up attending Mass once and even twice or three times a week. My home was thoroughly Roman Catholic. And there were many debates, disagreements, and conversations nearly every night around the dinner table, especially when we had company over that was... Roman Catholic, or with my Uncle Ray, who was a diocesan priest. And eventually, my brother left the Catholic Church and started to pursue the pastorate in a charismatic church. 
This led to even more lively debate and discussion around the dinner table. With many times my family purposely provoking the arguments. And as the younger one, most of the time, I just listened and watched. But I continued to participate in the Mass. I was faithful in my attendance and very involved in the liturgical worship side of things. And then, as I became older, I went to the University of Florida, where I discovered a very different way of doing Mass and very different homilies from the pulpit. Let's just say that the overall narrative and the overall liturgical style of worship was more intersectional in nature, and the homilies were much more social justice or liberation-oriented. Now, this sort of mass was something that my father, my biological father, would have been more comfortable with. This was what made up the direction and flow of mass in South Florida, and my father was much more social justice-oriented. In fact, the first time that I saw the books Eros and Civilization and One Dimensional Man by Herbert Marcuse, well, that was in my father's bookshelf. I'm not sure if he ever really dug into them that much, but that's where I first saw them. And this was accompanied by various books dealing with liberation and other similar themes. It's funny because when I was very young and with my mom, when she had to attend additional teacher's workshops, I was introduced to Paulo Ferreri's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Now, this was a long, long time ago. But something about the parish in Gainesville, the one in Gainesville, Florida, right there off the main campus. Maybe you've been up to Gainesville before. It's just before you get over to, to the stadium. Well, something about that mass did not sit comfortably with me. There was the primary message in the Roman Catholic sense that was being lost in the constant jabbering on about collectivism, oppression, and the evils of capitalism. So, from a recommendation, when I started to vocalize the fact that I really wasn't comfortable with some of the things that were being said there, and someone who was somewhat familiar with Marxist uh, philosophy and as well what that all meant, someone who's half Cuban, of course, as I am, I just some things there just didn't sit well. So, someone had recommended that I go to a small parish just outside of Gainesville. And it was there that I met a priest that introduced me to authors like Malachi Martin, Ralph Wilkin. And as well, he introduced me and encouraged me to read for my understanding G.W. Hegel, Kant, and then as well, Engels and Marx. Now, he wanted me to read these things because he wanted to help me understand what was going on. So, in many ways, this was my first real introduction uh, to proper apologetics. And the priest very much emphasized Gramsci as well. And this is where he recommended that I read The Keys of This Blood by Malachi Martin. And this very conservative priest that I was speaking to was clear that about 70 or so years before that the Italian cultural Marxist Antonio Gramsci proposed a very different path to global socialism than Karl Marx's economic determinism. It's not that there wasn't Marxian elements and really a Marxian undergirding beneath that, but he was saying that there was a different methodology and strategy in order to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. And he explained that Gramsci based his theory on wielding and maintaining power by the ruling class, 
which has commonly become known as his theory of cultural hegemony. And it was explained to me, and what I read was that Gramsci theorized that the ruling class used cultural institutions to maintain power. And these cultural institutions, such as universities, governments, the arts, and religion, use ideology rather than violence or economic force to propagate their own values by creating the capitalist zeitgeist. Well, in Gramsci's Marxist and Hegelian-informed views, the cultural hegemony that had to be done away with is maintained by the capitalist ruling class through the institutions that make up society's superstructure. So Gramsci and Marxists define the superstructure as everything not directly having to do with production, such as family, culture, education, media, law, and religion. It was this conservative priest, many years ago, who first gave me a Xerox copy of some quotes from Gramsci. And this is where I first read Gramsci's famous quote. Quote, Socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. In the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. End quote. And what Gramsci was proposing was what Rudi Deutschke had later coined as the long march through the institutions. Herbert Marcuse agreed with this strategy as well. And to accomplish this, Gramsci postulated that in order to overcome the current cultural hegemony, a counter-hegemony needed to be created to rival the cultural pillars of our civilization. And one of those institutions would be the Roman Catholic Church. Now, this conservative Roman Catholic priest also talked to me about the challenges of progressivism that had been brought in by radicals from both sides both the left and the right in the Roman Catholic Church. He explained the dialectic, as Malachi Martin did as well, in the Keys of This Blood, the left and the right. The problem, the left, the reaction, the right's reaction, and the solution, the eventual goal of the one who is running the dialectic. He explained to me very early on that the manipulator had to both control the problem and the reaction in order to achieve their solution. There is no getting to the solution without control of both the left and the right. We call it the political class here. We also call it the swamp, controlling both the left, the problem, the right, the reaction, in order to get the final solution. And in the control of the right, this conservative priest focused on the church's use of integralism. Now, I know some people want to call it integralism. It's because they want you to feel as if there's the word integrity included. More pointedly, though, integralismo, through Dom Helder Camara, the red bishop of Recife, in Brazil, that was his focus. And at that time, I believe this was maybe 10 years, 11, 12 years before Dom Helder Camara actually passed away, which was in 1999. And he talked about Camara and his influence in the Synod of the Catacombs around the closing of Vatican II. And that was when 42 council fathers celebrated Mass in the catacombs underneath Rome. 
to ask God for the grace to be faithful to the spirit of Jesus in the service of the poor. After the celebration of the liturgy in the catacombs, they signed the Catacombs Pact of the Poor and Servant Church. Later, more than 500 council fathers added their names to the pact. And according to the text of the Pact of the Catacombs, the bishops pledged to politicize the church for the sake of ushering in the advent of another social order. For example, the text of the Pact of the Catacombs stated, quote, We will do our utmost so that those responsible for our government and for our public services make and put into practice laws, structures, and social institutions required by justice and charity, equality, and the harmonic and holistic development of all men and women, and by this means bring about the advent of another social order, worthy of the sons and daughters of mankind. And of God. And yeah, much of this had a very Gnostic flair to it, but that's integralismo. Quite a bit of matter and physical bad and spiritual and metaphysical good sort of language. And what was clearly explained to me is that this pact led in the spirit of Dom Helder Kamara was an attempt at infusing the socialist totalitarian concepts of Kamara's integralismo but with a bit more spicy liberation and Marxism thrown in. Because it was an attempt to convince the faithful that the capitalist systems, the systems of liberty and freedom, the systems of free and democratic people, well, those were evil systems. You needed top-down totalitarianism in order to fix what is wrong in the world. Now, a few years ago, Spectator magazine addressed what happened in the Pact of the Catacombs. And they stated this, quote, it had the odor of communism, end quote. This is what Roman Catholic brother Uwe Heisterhoff explained to the reporter. It also had the odor, now ubiquitous at the Synod, of a UN-style brave new world totalitarianism. For how else could such an order be created without international government bodies squelching freedom, end quote? Well, through integralismo by erasing the freedom of conscience and liberties that men and women have, and compelling them collectively. That's how. The Spectator article continues, quote, It is no coincidence that the German bishops who are largely running and financing the Synod, their relief agencies have spent millions of dollars on travel for Indian activists, observers, and propaganda, have over the years been the loudest proponents of the Pact of the Catacombs call to turn the church into a socialist arm of the United Nations. After the election of Pope Francis, German Cardinal Walter Casper, among other figures, immediately drew attention to the pact. Casper described the election of Francis as its vindication. The church, he gushed, had finally embraced a pope who embodied its socialist spirit. Quote, it was forgotten, end quote. Casper said to a reporter, David Gibson, quote, but now Francis brings it back. His program is to a high degree what the catacomb pact was, end quote. That program from the start included the Pan-Amazon Synod, which is nothing more than a pretext to unite the church and the United Nations 
in a power grab against Brazil and other Latin American countries where the Amazonians reside. Rome, as I can attest from my visit to it, is crawling with United Nations officials. End quote. So a lot of this and the knowledge of what was happening with the Pact of the Catacombs, with Domhelder Camara, with this new thing that I really hadn't heard much of when I was a kid, Intergalismo, this is something that I was introduced to back when I was 19, 20 years old. And so this priest just outside of Gainesville, Florida, more than 30 years ago, was trying to warn me that this was the spirit and this was the intention of what was happening not just within the Roman Catholic Church, but around the world. And as this conservative priest was explaining to me, that that was the same spirit that was as well at the parish that was next to the campus at the University of Florida. That the more radical campus parish was using generative themes in an attempt to connect the church's teachings to the multi-ethnic student body but that the actual teaching of the church was getting lost in all of this talk of oppression and liberation, well, that was the Rhine River flowing into the Tiber. Curiously enough, this Roman Catholic priest was the man that gave me the book, Believe It or Not, The Holiness of God by Dr. R.C. Sproul. That was my introduction to R.C. Sproul. Funny how God's providence works. And this priest also explained how all of this social justice insanity would soon be making its way into the majority of evangelical Protestantism soon. He explained that it was already in the mainline institutions. And I had sort of already started to see that to some extent in the Methodist church that we attended when we were on vacation during the summers in Elkton, Maryland. Something very progressive was going on there, even more progressive than my home parish. Well, through the years, I continued to attend. But when I started to attend other Roman Catholic parishes, I began to start to see things a bit more clearly. And I did fall away from the church for a while, maybe for a year or two before coming back. But I will admit that there was a bit of cynicism that accompanied my understanding of what was happening on the altar. Now, during the time, I was working at professional tennis academies and as well participating in both powerlifting and as well competitive bodybuilding for at least three years. And this gave me a lot of time to listen to things. And I especially liked listening to both philosophy and theology. Thankfully, just a few weeks after a bodybuilding contest, I met the woman who would eventually become my wife in a coffee shop just next to the gym. All 5% body fat of me and all. It was a good time to meet her. (laughs) I was kind of at my best, I guess. And so I eventually attended Bible studies with her at her Baptist church in Clearwater, Florida. Specifically, Calvary Baptist Church in Clearwater, Florida. And through listening to Renewing Your Mind with Dr. R.C. Sproul, And then from driving to and from the tennis academy and through reading apologetics on all sides of the issues, but ultimately through the conviction of the word, through Bible studies in Galatians and Ephesians, 
I understood that I was a sinner in need of a savior and that there was nothing I could do to save myself. I was dead in my trespasses and sins and that there was one perfect savior who had taken my sins with him to the cross. And I received Christ by faith. Now, if you know me, it wasn't long before I was teaching Sunday school, which I think, by the way, pastors, I would suggest at least a year or so before unleashing even your most articulate proselytes on your congregation. But this was my passion. And I began to see something, especially when it was announced later that year that the Billy Graham crusade was coming to Tampa Bay and that we at Calvary Baptist Church were going to be the main church headquarters for the Billy Graham crusade. I began to see things that I had seen happening in the Roman Catholic Church. All the social justice, progressivism, liberation theology nonsense. All the compromising. Well, all of a sudden I was beginning to see a lot of that same language being used in Presbyterian and Baptist circles. Like, word for word, the exact same thing. Action for action, the same sort of rhetoric in conferences. It's like I was living in 1988 all over again. So as a young whippersnapper at 29 or 30 years old, I decided to arrange a debate between some balding guy with no fashion sense named James White and a Roman Catholic apologist, Robert Genis, on the thesis of papal infallibility. Because I understood that this is where the heart of the issue would be. Is it the scriptures that are authoritative, or is it a man who is authoritative over the scriptures? The pastor of my church was supposed to moderate the debate, and even though I tried to prep him with how he would need to moderate a modified Lincoln-Douglas debate, I, by the way, have extensive debate experience from high school and college, well, he failed miserably. So this began the tradition of my moderating all the debates that I was arranging. And with every debate, I would also hold a conference. And the way that I would pay for all of this would be to as well hold a cruise with Dr. White or with others in the conference. And that is how the industry side of things for me got started in the travel and transportation industry. And my wife and I gave sacrificially for the sake of having debate after debate and conference after conference. I believe that James White was the man that God had appointed at the time to handle almost all the issues that were being brought to the church. And I really didn't see the rest of evangelicalism or reformed evangelicalism taking on any of these issues without any kind of scholasticism, research, or clarity. And that is where many of you that are older would have become most familiar with me let's say 15 years ago. I was the man moderating a good portion of Dr. White's debates from around 1999 to 2019. And yes, I was also the guy who was trying to subsidize almost all the costs for the debates and the conferences myself. And I believe that God has richly used those efforts. We had all sorts of debates through the years with Roman Catholics, Muslims, atheists, Jehovah's Witnesses, progressive Christians, open theists, and so on and so on. And the weird thing is this, outside of John Shelby's bong, we all got along before, during, and after the debates. We made the debates happen. I moderated fairly and impartially. I, th- I think the opponents would say that that was the case. We had our conferences, and we moved the ball in regards to opening the right kind of disagreements and debates with those that we have disagreements with. 
please note that. This new generation seems to have a problem with being able to do that with those that are not participating in their neo-Knight Templar-like crusades. But as long as I was doing these conferences and debates, and I was doing now multiple large cruises, tours, and conferences, and many other ministries and organizations who had attended some of our events and cruises stated to us that the products and services that we were providing were far superior to the other organizations that were supplying cruises, tours, and conferences. And they started doing business with us as well. And not just to toot my own horn, but yeah, okay, I will. The services that the Sovereign Alliance and Sovereign Cruises supplied, it's a far superior product to any other service provider that you can find. We really have no benchmark competitors. And so also, we started to get a tremendous amount of corporate and political business as well. We have international freight companies that we provide our services to, political organizations, medical and healthcare providers, all sorts of affinity groups and very of various stripes. And before too long, we had a whole lot of business. And at the same time, I started to be asked to be on different boards of directors and boards of advisors, not just in ministry but also in the corporate world. And I was also asked to advise in many political organizations and as well advise candidates, which I've been doing quite a bit of, and this would be from around 2006 to 2011. And well, that is where I started to hear a lot of things that were, once again, rather familiar. Statements and comments being made all around me with certain big money donors and ministries, in corporate boardrooms and travel industry meetings, and in the think tanks and boardrooms of political organizations that I was interacting with during this time. They were all saying very familiar things, just like I was back in that conservative priest's favorite lunch spot all over again in the late 1980s, listening to how there was a need for a new social order how everything was going to be changing, and there was going to be nothing that we could do about it. So we had to go along with these changes, if we knew what was good for us. And as I have said many times in the past, I heard this from travel and transportation CEOs, from major hotel brand CEOs. I heard this from Chinese connected billionaires like Ronnie Chan and many others. And I heard this from men who had powerful positions in Christian ministry. But they gave the same message wrapped up in gospel Christianese that had to wrap some sort of false evangelization model in the script. Somehow shove it in there with all your globalism, you know, from people like Ed Stetzer. And again, I heard what Ed Stetzer said to us at Jack's Place at the Rosen Hotel just weeks after hearing the same thing from a Chinese billionaire oligarch who was part of the World Economics Forum, Council on Foreign Relations, and the president of the Asia Society. Kind of weird, isn't it? (laughs) That I'm hearing this from everybody. And that they were all saying the exact same thing. That's odd, don't you think? And we were now all being asked to play a role to help make this entire thing happen. And you didn't want to step out of line. You had to be with the program. And in two occasions, I sat through seminars on the application and process of reflexivity. I was given The Alchemy of Finance by George Soros, the book. And at cocktail parties and social get-togethers where people would casually throw on phrases like, 
Until we control the minds of men, we will not have peace. Yeah, they would say things like that. And you'd meet all sorts of interesting people at these places, like, I don't know, like Richard Florida, Serge Popovich. Also, at one of these pre-function meetings about 12 years ago is where I first met Julia Nyschwatt, DeSantis's first chief resilience officer, who I later met for hors d'oeuvres in 2018 with her then-boyfriend, Congressman Mike Waltz, in the Trump D.C. Hotel's Benjamin Barr. And of course, she didn't recognize me, but I went ahead and spilled a whole bunch of only insiders would know this kind of stuff information that literally made both of their faces freeze for about 10 minutes. It was hilarious. <laughs> well, anyway, it was in meetings years ago where I was hearing about the need to transition into a circular economy, how we needed to embrace stakeholder capitalism, which when you first hear the term stakeholder capitalism, alarm bells and red flags wouldn't normally go off. But the red flag should go up because we're talking about a departure from free market capitalism and shareholder capitalism. Now, when I started asking questions about stakeholder capitalism way back then, I was given a few stupid answers and was told that it was all very, very complicated. And so I said, well, try me. And to put it simply, because it is so very, very complicated, which it really isn't, stakeholder capitalism is basically private-public partnership, uh, supranational fascism. There's your Leninism stage one, as James Lindsay would say, your Soviet party. Then stakeholders expand to super-socialism. And that's where the expansion of stakeholders and their equality expands so fully that the supra-state becomes redundant and finally communism is achieved. So the very increasing, giant, and definitely not fascist public-private partnership of NGOs, governments, and huge corporations will be accountable to all stakeholders. Somehow, they deem best. So, in other words, it's the stakeholders that they say are the ones that actually deserve to have this accountability. And the model starts with, isn't this interesting? Because I first heard this term in terms of economics, the model starts with intersectional equity, which is where the ESG and DEI comes into play. And this is where I first heard of ESG and how it would be applied to Western nations, but not really to China, because they already got their own model, which means that this is basically a cartel. And every corporation and every financial institution is being forced to play in the stakeholder game as globalists who are having closed-door meetings are deciding your future and the future of your descendants. And you have no idea what has been planned over the past many decades. And through those decades, gradualistic, slow change, and then bam, all at once, as soon as the pieces of the puzzle are put into place, then the change happens. Because China had to grow and prosper, you see. And that is where the talk of Thucydides' trap came into discussion as well. I mean, you see, all of our systems have to change to move from a unipolar world, meaning a world that is governed by capitalism and basically where you have the United States as being dominant, to a multipolar world, which is not really what they're after, by the way. It's not multipolarity. It will seem to be multipolar for a while, but the purpose of all of this is, eventually, singularity. And so to achieve this, both nationally and internationally, you need to 
divide and conquer, balkanize. And when I push back on this notion at what I believe was, I think we were at Tony Cheng's Seafood and Dim Sum back in 2011 in D.C., once again I was told that I really just don't understand and was given a book by another author. They said, oh, read this book. It was Bill Bishop's book, and the name of the book was The Big Sort. And to accompany this book, when we got back to the meeting location, I was given several PDFs in the binder from both progressive and conservative organizations touting the need for systemic change in the United States. And all of these white paper reports and plans for systemic change all had the same theme. That we need to refactor for subsidiarity. I mean, we need to get past this whole big central government concept. And so it's important to have the big central government purposely wreck our nation. So that way you cause a reaction. So, And at the same time, you want to fracture the nation into what Jordan Peterson refers to as the Hobbesian battleground of competing ideas and identities. And so the plan is to completely fracture the nation, disrupt and dismantle and deconstruct the nation in a Derridian sense into a micro-techno-feudal society. Yeah, because when you divide, you can conquer. You create a firestorm of chaos. Because chaos is a ladder. Anyway, so one of the things that I was told by the president of the Asia Society in the parking lot of the Jacksonville, Florida Hyatt back in 2009, after we had returned from China with a group of pastors, was really the entire strategy in a nutshell. Yes, I remember exactly where we were. I remember even what time of day it was. And I remember saying to him that China was truly incredible. Massive and technologically advanced, really more amazing than I could have ever imagined, especially in the way that we were shown China, which was in all five-star hotels and privately driven everywhere. And also, it was very obvious from all the cranes everywhere that China was growing at a rapid rate. But it was also a very monitored society. And I just didn't think that any of that could really happen in the United States. And his response to me was, oh, it's going to happen. And then I ignorantly stated this. I said, it won't happen here. We have a constitution. And he stated that there were two ways around the constitution. Number one, identity politics. Number two, public health. And golly, you know what happened just about five years after that time that he had told me that, was that he and his younger brother gave half a billion dollars to Harvard to start the T.H. Chan School of Public Health, which is where you will see the synthesis of public health and identity politics. And that's where our current CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, came from. Please note that for future reference. But when you first see the term identity politics what would probably come to mind is critical race theory or all the accompanying ridiculous insults and accusations of white supremacy and white privilege. What you don't take into account is that in a coordinated effort to disrupt a nation, 
the strategizing party must control the entirety of the process. Let's go through this again. All stages of problem, reaction, which then leads you to the solution. So you first introduce the problem, all forms of radical Marxist identity politics, from critical race theory to intersectionality to radical feminism to queer theory. You get these radical Marxist identity groups to start talking about their own national identity. You have them create their own flags and even have their own anthems. You add all of these into a large pot, turn up the heat to a boil, and then stir the pot. Next, after about five to ten years, you add the reaction or the neo-reaction ingredients to the stew. The reactionary groups pushing back against the race Marxism, the radical feminism, and the queer theory, you really get them fired up. And you as well create a catch-all pit for the reaction, for their violent sometimes reaction, for their passionate reaction. Sometimes a reaction that's saying, well, we need to split away and create a national divorce. Or we need to create our own techno-fetal societies. And you create this catch-all pit and you label it Christian nationalism. And you add them into the pot as well. Then you turn up the heat on the stove a bit more. And stir the pot. Because your end solution in the problem-reaction-solution game is a new social contract out of the violence, chaos, and burning ashes of what was America. And complete control after everyone tears one another to pieces. And ladies and gentlemen, I have been warning about this for a long, long time time. And it's amazing to me to see men that I have been warning personally that this would be the way that this would go, to see some of them jumping into this now. But in the new social contract, you see, we need new ideologies to be introduced to create new, more equitable, fairer narratives by using critical race theory and intersectional approaches to financing. How we had to reach a net zero carbon neutral world and eliminate waste and excess for physicalness and transition into the digital green economy. And as well, how objective truth needed to be replaced by truth that works. How we needed a nonviolent Great Reset that would basically take the place of what would happen in the destruction of a world war that would allow us to usher in the Fourth Industrial Revolution and that if the crisis after crisis would arise and if the dialectic can be played properly, then we can enter a new age that respects our commitments made at the Rio Summit way, way back in the 90s that can help us to meet our Agenda 2021 targets and allow us to have a more managed and efficient world. A world that had to be in lockstep together in making these decisions. Yeah, I received that PDF in a binder in 2011 as well. Lockstep, that is. These sorts of things were the constant talking points in nearly every closed-door conference that I was a part of for geopolitics with the travel industry. And as well, it happened in our meetings that we were running 
for other organizations that were geopolitical in nature, where you had all sorts of folks in there, folks that were either past with the State Department, current with the State Department, former ambassadors, people that were involved with the World Economic Forum and all sorts of other NGOs. They were all in there too. Now, along with this, in certain contexts that invoked folks that were associated with these organizations, you know, AEI, Asia Society, LIPO, and others, the discussions would center on how I could be used, Michael Fallon, to help build bridges of trust with faith communities. You see, because it is important to have faith communities involved to bring the spiritual and relational side into these necessary changes over the next 20 to 30 years. And see, because we do have the governmental side ready to make these top-down changes, and we have the corporate and financial sector to implement these changes, we need faith or the church now, to help facilitate and guide people's passions and responses to these critical but necessary paradigm shifts in society. You see, because especially in the United States, we really need to move to what we could call the big sort. The fracturing of identity groups in more manageable techno-fetalist societies. You know, you got to keep them separated as the song goes where we prevent a full national uprising against these changes. And this will benefit those communities and allow for the technocrats to make the necessary systemic changes that will eventually be imposed on smaller communities. But if those communities rise up, they will be small enough and powerless enough that they can be dealt with quickly, because they won't be unifying together as a large nation. And as I have said, (laughs) guys... You gotta look, I've been trying to explain this for so many years that it's all part of the same thing. The whole purpose of sovereign nations was to replace their fake, false reaction. That the reaction would come from us who understood what was going on and could explain it. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that have now decided to say, okay, we're going to explain it too, but we're not going to talk, talk about who and why and what. No, they're just going to talk about CRT and not talk about what's behind all of this. And we've got to get back to the causes of things. But I digress. But as I was just saying, back in 2011, one of the ways that the social scientists had devised a scheme for dealing with counter-revolutionary uprisings was to begin to funnel conservative Christian passions into what they were calling at the time Christian nationalism. You might remember six, seven years ago with folks like Russell Moore and Beth Moore and, and other people that were saying, oh, Christian nationalism is a huge problem and so forth. So they were already creating the operational preparation for the environment as well, getting the intelligence agencies and so forth geared up for this. And more or less, the same system that the progressive left making these sweeping changes was using, you know, the three-legged stool, the corporate government and faith three-legged stool. Well, you had to do the same thing on the right because both of the systems were both the same systems, but from different perspectives. But if you can have the left advocating for an integralismo type of system and you can have the right actually advocating for the same thing, then you play both ends against the middle. 
But it was important to have both sides abandon the old constitutional system that would protect inalienable rights and liberalism. Yeah, classical liberalism, which was the main problem that they had, is individualism. You had to move towards collectivism. And this system, as I have mentioned many times in years past in my podcast, my live presentations, is called integralism. And we're going to get more into that in the next few weeks. Because you can have integralism, again, on the left, and you can have integralism on the right. But both systems are in contradiction to constitutional principles. You can start with soft integralism, with neo-integralism. But eventually, once you reject your old system, and as that new system becomes the norm, well, eventually, you just have integralism. In other words, right? It's inch by inch. Tiny step by tiny step. And before you know it, you're two miles down the road. But in the beginning, you want to play the Mott and Bailey with the soft, it's just Mott position being Christian nationalism. And the stronger, this is what it really is, Bailey position is integralism. So there are new systems that they want to impose on us, systems that are concerned about the common good, because that sounds so good. Sounds like social justice. Systems that have unbound executives that would allow these unbound executives to make the right decisions in critical situations instead of getting all tied up in Congress or parliaments. Yes, I did hear about this a long, long time ago. And yes, this has just recently started to rise in legal studies and in Christian studies in the academic circles, in think tanks, and even in Muslim circles throughout the United States and Europe. And this is one of the reasons that I have, as far back as 2012, refused to be called a Christian nationalist. That's the Mott position. But once again, I have digressed. Let's get back to 2012. I jumped way ahead of myself there on that. I apologize. So let's go back to 2012. Money was good. Opportunities were good, especially in the time, basically, of a pretty disastrous recession, in particular within the travel industry. Things were good for us. Now, things were tough in giving in ministries. So some of the ministries that I was associated with, many of them, not all of them, took all sorts of financial incentives to start down the road of becoming the third leg of the stool on the left side. They were going to become the problem in the problem-reaction-solution dialectic. Opportunities were unending and the amount of cash that would be going towards helping them achieve these goals was endless as well. So I'm looking around me and all sorts of ministries and men that I had respected had jumped onto this financially lucrative bandwagon. And that was the deceptive part of it. You see, I respected a lot of these men in their ministries, and I tried to counsel with several of them. And many gave me the same answer that all money is God's money, which to some extent is true, but it isn't attached to God's favor if you're receiving it from a pimp. Who is asking, by the way, this pimp, for you to lay down in the bed of compromise as they spray $100 bills all over your back. That just makes you a prostitute. There was a moment when I knew that all of this had to end and that I had to break away from all of this. And that definite moment happened in 2013, and I walked away from a lot, and 
I received warnings as I left. And I tried to call men around me to explain to them what was going on. And I would call many of these men and try to explain to them the big picture of what was going on. And I know many of them thought that I was crazy or losing my mind. But they know, if they remember back to what I was saying to them then, and how it's all happened, that I wasn't. I knew exactly what I was saying. Not because I was any smarter than anybody else, just because I was in the rooms. I received the documents. I know what to read. I know exactly what they're doing. And I know I may have said too much in 2012 and 2013 when I started talking about brain implants and the loss of cognitive liberty. But yeah, I had heard that as well in one of the meetings that I was in at the Wilson Center. And I know it sounded crazy. And I guess if I were in their shoes, I would have said, well, I'll pray for you, Mike, and hung up the phone. But guys, before we go any further, and I know some of you are listening, I I tried to warn all of you. I spoke and warned most of the men that I thought I could trust that were in ministry. Heck, you can ask, and I'll drop a name, Chocolate Knox. I started talking to him about all this stuff back in 2012 when I think I was getting ready to leave. I spoke to James White and Rich Pierce at Alpha Omega Ministries about this at length. Heck, I even tried to talk Al Moeller out of it years ago. But on the other end, I was talking to congressmen about it. I was talking to corporate CEOs about it all over the world. I spoke to Nigel Farage about it at length. I spoke to several MPs about it. I spoke to Marion Marichelle, and at one time she was called Marion Marichelle Le Pen, about it as well. And I even tried to talk her out of integralism. A great meal, though, at the train station in Paris. Very good. I think it's a Michelin star, but it's fabulous. I tried to warn. And as I saw the warning signs of a no return coming, I begged men in corporate industry and governmental leadership in ministries and Christian ministries to stand up and fight this thing. But no one back then wanted to stand. I will give credit where credit is due. Brandon House, and many of you have many disagreements with him, could see something that was coming and was warning about it. Tom Littleton could see something coming and was warning about it. J.D. Hall could see something coming and was trying to warn But no one, no one else, those that we think of as those are the men who are watchmen of the walls, at our seminaries and our big parachurch ministries, no one else would stand against what would be a dialectical, diabolical Marxist invasion into the church, into our corporations, into our financial systems, into our governments. No one. No one in education, in the media, on both sides of the political aisle, and especially, especially not, and this is where you would expect someone to stand, especially not in Christian ministries. I just wonder sometimes if many of the men who have gone into ministry are the ones that have had the softest spines, because I've watched this over the past 20 years. They're protective, vindictive, stab each other in the back. There's very, very few men 
that I would almost consider trustworthy within ministry. No, even the best of men didn't want to touch the issue with a 10-foot pole back in 2015 or 2016. Because in doing so, it meant that everybody else was going to be against you. As a matter of fact, they were still having conferences with the men who were boldly teaching critical race theory and infusing their congregations and students with a critical consciousness. The Mullers, Devers, Legan Duncans, Russell Moores, and Ed Stetzers of the world. My goodness, I mean, the majority of articles and videos on their seminary websites were full of critical race theory and anti-nationalism and support of embracing global citizenship. Now, that was just five or ten years ago. That wasn't that long ago. And so I started speaking up. I was kicked out of the Reform Pub. I was kicked out of other forums. And when I went back to men that I was close in ministry relationships with, and I begged them again, still no one wanted to take this on. So in 2016, I was sitting in an old wooden pew in a 300-year-old church in London when I pretty much had it confirmed in my mind. I, I don't want to get charismatic about this, but it was a confirmation in my mind that it was going to have to be me. And I didn't want it to be me. So, and I'm not being Christological here, guys, but it's like you start playing, if this cup may pass from me, and I'm not trying to to make that equal to anything that the Lord went through, believe me, because he carried my sin as well. But I really didn't want it. So the decision was made, though. I, I put it off. I kicked the can down the road. I admit it. The decision was made in the Jumariah Hotel in Frankfurt, Germany, which, by the way, is on the site where the original Rothschild Bank was actually erected back many, many years ago. I made that decision there that I was going to do this. And I didn't want to compete with my clients at WorldNet Daily, so we were going to partner to build this with them. And unfortunately, WorldNet Daily hit some difficult times. And so it was up to my team and I to build this organization while we were leading tours, cruises, and events in Central Europe in 2017. Oh yeah, and Alaska as well. We were there too. But not a lot of men in the corporate world would stand with me. Uh, no, no, one, no one that was even anywhere near this issue with an evangelicalism would want to stand with me on this. Well, there was somebody that would stand with me, and that was Ambassador Alan Keyes. And his attitude was, and still is, let's do whatever it takes. And I told many of the men who were at the heart of building the woke renaissance in the SBC and evangelicalism that I was going to light the fuse that would eventually start the movement against what they were doing. I directly told Dr. Mueller this in 2017. So you guys can't, unfortunately, you, you can't come to me and say, oh, well, he's been doing this and stabbing everybody in the back. No, I tried to warn everybody. This was what needed to happen. And in the dismissive arrogance that accompanies evangelical elites, these people dismissed my pleas to turn another direction. Most of the men who would later author books against CRT and social justice two years later wouldn't stand with me either. So we just decided that we were going to put on our first conference. This is in the midst of all the work that we were doing overseas. So literally from nowhere to somewhere to start this push against the Marxist tide against encroaching authoritarianism. And on October 31st, 2017, at the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C., I invited Dr. Jordan Peterson, Ambassador Alan Keyes, James White, 
and others to come as we would light the fuse to halt the progress of radical subjectivism. James White said that he would come and speak at the first conference that we would hold on these issues, and he did. And Dr. White's message from the conference was, Martin Luther and the dangers of sacralism. And if you have not heard that message, you should. And of course, Dr. Peterson's defining message was the Marxist lie of white privilege. And as a whole, with myself and Summer Yanger and other speakers, we took on subjects that others were afraid to touch, that now everybody's talking about, but nobody would touch it then. But two months earlier than that, I held a conference at sea with WorldNet Daily where I took on progressivism and the move to infuse the church with critical race theory and queer theory. I also went very deep into reflexivity. So we had our start, and right or wrong, I tried to not name too many names. I regret that now. I tried to build a bridge to those that were still on this path, created by the World Economic Forum, Open Societies, Chinese Influences, Lippo, and other players like Paul Singer. And I begged and begged for other men to join me. But unfortunately, after those men doing a cost and benefit analysis, most of those men thought it was too costly to join in and trying to save the church from Marxist ideologies, being infused into the body of Christ by the church's own pastors, theologians, and leaders. I mean, someone might not invite you to speak in chapel again if you oppose what Al Mohler is doing by bringing in critical race theorists and progressives to teach at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I mean, Legan Dungan might not allow you to speak at his next conference if you criticize his hand-picked protege named Jamar Tisby, or... He might blackball you as he opens the African Christian Studies Institute in Atlanta that focused on liberation theology and CRT. You see, it might cost you. So there weren't many standing around me in 2017. And even those that had some knowledge of what was going on stayed silent. And so I got used to standing alone. And I decided to march on because these men that called themselves pastors, leaders, and theologians were so concerned about what their fellow pastors, theologians, and reformed Christian celebrities were thinking about them. They had a big audience to be responsible to, a big audience of peers that had decided to take the Marxist road and capitulate to the strategies and goals of the World Economic Forum and all the other NGOs. Heck, you didn't want to tick off James Riotti. That could be costly. You didn't want to tick off the entirety of Southern Baptist leadership. You don't want to tick off the entirety of the Gospel Coalition. You don't want to be blackballed by nearly every evangelical seminary in the United States and Europe. You see, you have a big audience to play to in Reformed evangelicalism. And you had better please that big audience. And for me, I had an audience of one. And he is the only one that I am playing to. I also know that I need to protect my family and your family and my nation. And I knew, and I still know, what is coming. And yes, I have taken great risks to continue for the last six years in bringing you the facts about what would be coming and how we must respond. 
Well, after about six months, the arrogant neo-Marxists just couldn't keep their masks on. And so you first had the massive race Marxism festival known as MLK 50 with Russell Moore, Beth Moore, John Piper, Matt Chandler, and all sorts of other almost Christians discovered who tried to begin the struggle session in evangelicalism. And then shortly thereafter, you had struggle session number two at T4G with Moeller, Legan Duncan, Mark Dever, David Platt, and others continuing the same infusion of hermetic Gnosticism into naively trusting reformed evangelicals. By the way, I'm not exaggerating. Not one bit. And it was during that time that I called some men that I thought I could trust in Reformed Evangelicalism and received some rebukes for jumping ahead. But I did call one man that I had been speaking to and basically said, we have to do this. We have to provide clarity and provide an answer. And that man equally shared the same concern. And that is where the statement on social justice and the gospel began. It was supposed to originally be in Atlanta, by the way. But briefly, I will say that the statement was not as strong as Josh Bicerai and many others would have liked the statement to be. There were eventually too many hands in the pot. It should have sharper teeth. There were also men in Dallas that had no intention in signing the document but it was eventually released after some delay. And it did start a conversation. But here's where my first mistake was. I trusted that the Reformed and Evangelical men would do what was necessary to cleanse the church of the charlatan elite evangelical leader class and kick them out of their positions. But no, that's not how politics work in Big Eva. No, so many men still desire to be liked and be celebrated than to demand truth and holiness, because there are times when action must be taken, and the only action that many of these men would eventually take is action that would bring applause and accolades to themselves for being courageous, when they should be doing whatever is necessary to remove the cancer from the church. And that is what has made them susceptible to manipulation from the next threat, that I warned them about that would be coming. Because I warned everyone that the threat would be part of the dialectic, the problem-reaction-solution game, and for the grand puppet masters behind all of this mess to achieve their solution, they had to manipulate. The problem, the problem being the radicalization and Marxification of all society, then they had to manipulate. The reaction the radical, angry call to aggressive crusader-like responses to the problem, once again, planned long ago in the proposal to fracture society and for the refactoring of subsidiarity to eventually get their solution, the remolding of the world into the next singularity-minded social contract after the previous way of life has been burnt to the ground. A resurrection of sorts, you could say, a resurrection into the technocratic algorithmic autocratic integralist age, an age of authoritarianism, but very much with religious authority. That's always been part of the plan. I've been warning about this for years. And the trap of the pre-prepared reaction was the creation of a rabid neo-reaction centered around the Mott term, the very friendly term, the very acceptable, embraceable term of Christian nationalism. And this is why when Jack Jenkins of the Religious News Service contacted me back in 2019, and this was, by the way, right after several of us met with Al Mohler and Danny Aiken, 
and I guess Al figured out finally that I was kind of the organizer and information provider of the entire movement. So, although I did tell Al, just Al, I did tell you two years previously what I was going to do, and you just didn't believe me. But anyway, well, when Jack Jenkins contacted me in 2019 to write a hit piece on me, he kept on trying to insist that I was a Christian nationalist. He wanted to paint me so badly as a Christian nationalist, and he wanted me to embrace that term. And I kept on refusing. He even says that in the article. I mean, Jack Jenkins was being pretty insistent, and I was refusing, because I knew exactly where all this was going. I told him explicitly that I was not a Christian nationalist. Now, Jack and his article tried to, again, in so many weird ways, try to find a way to still fit me into that definition. But then he also said something that was even weirder that ends up now being a badge of honor, attempting to tie me directly to one of the reasons for the rise of Jordan Peterson. Well, I appreciate that, Jack. Thank you for making that mistake. But anyway, I told all of the men that were around me that had been with me, let's say, in Dallas and other places, to not use the term Christian nationalism. I explained why I used the term nationism as I did in my interview. I have explained this time and time again on Twitter and on social media that Christian nationalism is the term that was used to describe those men and women who are neo-reactionaries and calling for the secession or separation of the United States. And I tried to explain, this is four or five years ago, that this is where they would try to funnel anybody that had a concern about what was going on with the problems that were facing us. But Christians now are doing just that. Because most of the more aggressive crusade-oriented conservative types have never seen a giant gaping hole with a snake pit at the bottom that they didn't want to jump into headfirst. And so now they're jumping. But it's important to understand something else. Sovereign Nations was never intended to be a ministry. That is why we have subjects that we deal with all over the political, geopolitical, corporate, and cultural landscape. And while I am by conviction a Reformed Baptist, I expected that the men that I trusted would not just close their eyes and pretend the job is done. Just because they published a book or spoke sloppily about CRT at a conference. I expected them to regain their position as watchmen on the wall. That was my biggest mistake, believing that men of the church would hold these that ushered in Marxism to the same degree of discipline that they would a Sunday school teacher who might say something positive about something a charismatic said. No, the Sunday school teacher will likely never teach again, but the neo-Marxists and the Marxists who brought all this parasitic corruption into the church, nah, just give them time to reinvent themselves. Because there are different weights and measures for Reformed evangelical leaders, especially if you are attempting to collect honorariums and want others to speak nicely about you. So all of the corrupt men who created this disaster in evangelicalism are still in leadership in evangelicalism. Nothing has changed. Maybe a few musical chairs have been exchanged, but there has not been one case of repentance or discipline because they are the political class and they just can't wait for the opportunity for more power. And that opportunity might be on the way. Now, on the other hand, sovereign nations had to keep on moving. I had to keep on talking about all sorts of issues, such as singularity, 
alchemy and hermeticism, climate justice, critical race praxis, the function and purpose of the dialectic, Gnosticism, health equity, the disrupting and dismantling of our nation, the end of capitalism, the soft holomador, simulacra and simulation, the transition into transhumanism, the Belt and Road Initiative, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, and where all this ends, with man creating God to rule over man, as below, so above. That is the evil hermetic trick. And yes, that is one of the reasons that we started New Discourses, to ensure that everything that needs to be discussed will be discussed. Because evangelicals are still sitting around barely understanding CRT while being shoved into the next dialectical process, while insisting that those that were responsible for CRT in the church stay in power. Which means the next big deception is already on our doorstep. As a matter of fact, it's already in our churches. And this is what we discussed in our last conference in Phoenix. I am here to give answers to everyone. Not just the Reformed Evangelical Church. Catholics, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Mormons, atheists, all listen to and read our material. And each need to individually confront the parasitic cancer in their own affinity communities. But where we have the greatest weakness, brothers, and where there is the greatest threat to the rest of America, is where the lampstand is being removed and replaced with a fake crusader's helmet and sword and where Nazi jurists are being praised as the ones with the right perspectives in a twisted authoritarian utopia. This must be stopped. Men and women everywhere must recognize the deception around them. Christian leaders who see the deception and the creeping cancer of sacralism who have been silent until now need to speak up. Because once again, you turn over the keys of the kingdom to these monarchists, there will be no getting those keys back. There can be no lose in this, because we must win. I'm Michael O'Fallon, and this has been Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic. Thank you.